0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
1: According to one of Pope Francis' famous four principles, time is greater than space. With all due respect to the pontiff, I must object, however, that at least with regards to the kingdom of God, its space is much greater than the 49 minutes allotted to me this afternoon. <laughs> As the prophet Baruch says, vast is the dwelling of God, broad the scope of its dominion, vast and endless, high and immeasurable, Baruch 3, 25. The kingdom of God for the coming of which the Lord himself ordained the direction of our prayers is a mystery that can be approached from many different angles. I find myself in America's lighthouse of Thomism and in a circle of Thomists, which would make a systematic approach seem the most appropriate and evident. Had you, however, wished a treatment of the kingdom of God in the theology of St. Thomas, you would have been better advised to invite Dr. Matthew Martin, who defended a dissertation on this very topic in this very city at the Catholic University of America in 2016. Instead, you invited a speaker who has no other qualification than a training in Old Testament historical critical exegesis, and thus, you get what you ask for. <laughs> and yet, I dare hope you will not be entirely disappointed by what I have to offer and follow for the following reason. Skimming through several books on the kingdom of God, I was surprised to find that hardly any take the time to first establish what the kingdom of God might have meant to a first century Jewish audience, and in what way the Old Testament has prepared both Jesus' contemporary audience and even ourselves to grasp this central aspect of his preaching. After all, the arrival of God's kingdom stands at the very core of Jesus' proclamation, powerfully summed up in his very first words to the world, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the euangelion, the gospel. The euangelion, we Germans pronounce it differently, the to the gospel of God, has, that Jesus has come to deliver consists precisely in the fact that the kingdom of God has arrived and that repentance and faith in the Evangelion are necessary for entering into it. The entire public preaching of our Lord is then an unfolding of this first opening statement. Should we not think that God would have prepared his people beforehand to have a minimal grasp of what, of what his son was going to proclaim? It is true, Jesus uses mainly parables to describe and define the kingdom, which is an indication of the fact that a first century Jewish understanding alone was insufficient for its full comprehension. And yet, we would fall into a Marcionite trap were we to believe that we can dispense with the Old Testament prefiguration of the kingdom of God and still get it right. I dare to hope then you will be surprised to find that the Old Testament's contribution is actually vital for our understanding of the kingdom's vast dimensions." In order to properly understand the Old Testament prefiguration, however, we need to reach even further back, namely to the cultural context in which revelation first occurred and the metaphors which it borrowed, cleansed and elevated in order to communicate with man. These myths were, so to say, the human alphabet the divine author adopted in order to to reveal himself. As we will see, they contain an astounding primordial knowledge about God's plan of salvation. In other words, we have here a powerful example of what C.S. Lewis felicitously called the true dreams of the pagans. I will proceed as follows. I will first give you an outline of the ancient Near Eastern understanding of kingship. Then show how this plays out in the Old Testament. Next, flesh out how this finds its fulfillment in Jesus' paschal mystery. And finally close with a very brief reflection on how this throws light on the question to what extent the kingdom of God is already among us and to what extent we're still praying for its coming. First, the understanding of kingship in the ancient Near East. Everywhere in the ancient Near East, the understanding of kingship, be it divine or human, was rooted in creation mythology. Divine kingship as such was self-evident for any ancient Near Eastern culture. The question was only, which god is king? How How did he come to be king? And how is his kingship realized on earth? According to the pervasive mythic view, Creation was the result of a primordial battle between a divinity and the cosmic forces of chaos. Following his victory, the divinity established his kingship and in so doing set up order in the cosmos. The god's decisive supremacy over chaos was then symbolized in his enthronement. This entailed the establishment of an earthly throne and a dwelling place that is a temple. The divinity's taking possession of his earthly abode was celebrated in the dedication of the temple, which was often understood as the realization of a sacred marriage by which the union of the heavenly and the earthly realm came about. The two most famous witnesses to this ancient Near Eastern creation mythology with the most prominent influence in the Bible were arguably the Canaanite Baal cycle, and the Babylonian creation epic Enuma Elish. Now, in the interest of time, I will only refresh your memory concerning Enuma Elish. It was probably composed in the 18th century BC, but read during the liturgy of the New Year's Festival well into the Seleucid period of the first millennium. It is the myth of the establishment of Marduk's kingship, the creation of his city, Babylon, and his central temple, the Esagila. It recounts the creation of the world as the result of a cosmic battle and the victory of the god Marduk over the monster Tiamat, the symbol of chaos, from whose carcass Marduk created heaven and earth. As a result of his victory, supreme kingship among the gods was awarded to Marduk and his temple, the Ezagila, was built in Babylon as a counterpart to the heavenly temple. In it, Marduk and the gods were to find their rest. The Enuma Elish was the foundational myth of the Assyrian and later Babylonian kingship. So in classical Mesopotamian royal ideology, as also in pre-exilic Jerusalem, the structure of the earth was understood to imitate that of heaven. Thus, the institution of kingship and temple below reflected the heavenly kingship above. This meant that the king was to reflect on earth what Marduk did in heaven. He was responsible for maintaining the cosmic order by fighting the enemy, which is the historicized version of the forces of cosmic chaos, and for completing the act of creation by building a palace slash a temple for his God, patterned after the heavenly temple. Establishing the divine legit- legitimacy of his rule was deeply bound up with the royal service. Thus, Enuma Elish reads, he, the king, shall make on earth the counterpart of what he brought to pass in heaven. As a result, the Esagila, that is Marduk's temple, was seen as the image of heaven and earth or the mirror and counterpart of Ea's dwelling in heaven. Every year during the autumn and or spring equinox that varied over the centuries, the Babylonians would celebrate the Akitu festival, during which the Enuma Elish was recited. The Akitu was a cosmogonic New Year's festival that is, through its rites, the temple and hence the world, were symbolically raised, purified, and recreated. Kingship, and hence cosmic order, were abolished and renewed. Thus, the Akitu festival also affected a return to the time of creation, which culminated in the enthronement of Marduk and the construction of Marduk's temple in Babylon, its celebration Signified the ritual reenactment of the chief god's original entry into his city and temple. In most places, the New Year's festival, this Akitu festival, included also some sort of a sacred marriage rite. These celebrations were the, the ritual enactment of the supreme deity's marriage with his consort upon entry into the temple. This is called a theogamy, a public feast in which the faithful uh, participated in joyful celebration. Other versions of a sacred marriage were the ritual enactment of the king's union to a goddess, a hierogamy, who would mediate to him the divine knowledge necessary for right governance. In either case, The belief was that life on earth depended on an ever renewed union with the realm of the gods brought about by actual or symbolic theogamy or hierogamy, celebrated in the temple. In summary, the following elements were constitutive for the pattern, a divinity's victory over the forces of evil and the institution of peace slash order on earth. The construction of the divinity's palace on earth, that is a temple, and his enthronement therein, which was then often accompanied by the celebration of a second marriage, symbolizing this union of heaven and earth that came about through the divinity's enthronement. Second, kingdom of God in the Old Testament. This ancient Eastern tradition of the enthronement of God after his victory over the enemies, is also reflected in the Bible. Namely, in the very old Song of the Sea in Exodus 15. In it, the Lord is praised for having overcome Pharaoh, who now takes the mythological place of the chaos monster, with the following words, I quote Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he is gloriously triumphant. Pharaoh's chariots and army he hurled into the sea. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In your great majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You loosed your wrath to consume them like stubble. End of quote. Just as Marduk had redeemed the minor gods from the tyranny of Tiamat, so God now redeems and thereby creates a people for himself whom he then guides to Mount Sinai, which the song calls God's holy dwelling, which corresponds to God's sanctuary. I continue the quotation from Exodus 15. In your love, Lord, you led the people you redeemed. In your strength, you guided them to your holy dwelling. End of quote. The victory over Pharaoh and the redemption of his people is subsequently just as in the ancient Eastern mythic pattern, followed by God's enthronement as king in the construction of his temple. The throne, the, the psalm calls it, of his kingship as expressed in the poetic climax of the song. You brought them in, you planted them on the mountain that is your own, The place you made the base of your throne, Lord, the sanctuary. Lord, your hands established. May the Lord reign forever and ever. End of quote. The ancient creation mythological pattern is easily discernible. Victory over God's enemies, redemption of his people, ascent to Mount Sinai, which is called God's dwelling, the base of his throne the sanctuary that God himself established with his own hands in order to reign forever and ever. Thus, his divine kingship is established on earth. Another striking example that connects victory and enthronement creation and temple in a way echoing the Mesopotamian epic is Psalm 93. In it, the Lord is praised for having overcome the mighty waters, a reminiscence of the mythical chaos monster, whose function in the Bible is assumed by the primordial death-bringing waters, which you all know from the Noah account. Here, too, the Lord is praised for having established his kingship. The Lord's acclamation as king follows the creation of the world. His throne is now firmly established, and his house, the temple, is praised. In Psalm 89, we again find the idea of creation as God's victory, over the raging sea and the swelling waters, waves. We even find mention of the mythical sea dragon, Rahab, another personification of primeval chaos. Most importantly, however, we find here a reflection of the Mesopotamian understanding of kingship, namely that the earthly king has been chosen by God himself and is to be, his earthly reflection and lieutenant. Everything that God has previously done himself, David is now empowered to do through the holy oil with which God himself has anointed David. In this Psalm 89, the voice of the Lord declares, I quote, I have set a leader over the warriors. I have raised up a chosen one from the people. I have chosen David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. My hand will be with him. My arm will make him strong. I will set his hand upon the sea, his right hand upon the rivers. He shall cry to me. You are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I myself make him my, the firstborn, most high over the kings of the earth. Forever I will maintain my mercy for him. My covenant with him stands forever, his throne as the days of heaven. In my holiness I have sworn once and for all, I will never be false to David. His dynasty will continue forever, his throne like the sun before me. Like the moon it will stand eternal forever, firm like the sky. Psalm 89 verses 20 to 36. Because God is forever the king of the universe, the dynasty granted to his chosen one must endure forever as well. By divine anointing, the king, hence the term Messiah, the anointed one, is adopted as a son of God and empowered with the same divine domination over the forces of evil. He is to be, in the language of Colossians, the visible reflection of the invisible God, in his way of governing God's people. The same so-called royal ideology, I'd rather call it royal theology, also undergirds the Bible's narrative account of Israel's kingship. In order to reflect the actions of God who created the people of Israel by overthrowing Pharaoh and leading his people to his holy mountain, the king, is anointed primarily in order to quote deliver the country from the enemy, 1 Samuel 9:16, and then recreate paradise on earth. This entails fighting the enemy, restoring peace to the country, the promulgation of divinely given laws, and the construction of a temple. That is why David's first item of action, after having been anointed as a child, was to go out and slay the head of the enemy's army, Goliath. He then gathered a mercenary army around himself and delivered the entire promised land from Philistine occupation. When the Lord had given him rest from his every enemy on every side, David rightly discerned the propitious moment to construct a temple for the Lord in order to establish God's kingdom in Israel and thereby his own. At this point, however, the Bible introduces a massive deviation from the ancient Near Eastern pattern in that God promises an everlasting dynasty to David in spite of him, in spite of not permitting him to build a temple for the Lord. In the ancient Near East, the promise of an everlasting dynasty was typically given as a reward for having built the temple. At the same time, however, God promises David a son who will build a house for the Lord's name and whose throne shall be established forever. Seen from an historical perspective, this promise was fulfilled in Solomon, who built the Lord a glorious temple and thereby accomplished what any ancient Near Eastern king, needed to do in order to achieve an everlasting kingship. So the pair of David and Solomon, the warrior king and the king of peace together, mirrored the divine action of recreating Israel into the image of paradise restored. According to the Mesopotamian pattern, the temple dedication would have been followed by a sacred marriage of the gods in the temple. In many cases, This would have been ritually enacted on earth, with the king playing a key role in the ritual. Now, such a ritual was obviously out of the question for ancient Israel, whose rejection of polytheism had also consistently led to the rejection of any goddess worship and the fertility rites like sacred marriage that went along with it. Nevertheless, the notion of sacred marriage, which was to bring about this union of heaven and earth, was not abandoned altogether. Instead, it was transformed. While any self-respecting Mesopotamian god had at least one wife, Israel did not have an Asherah, which would have been the name of the mother goddess in Canaan, whose worship was a constant temptation for the Israelites, as the biblical literature amply attests. Instead, and this is absolutely unique in the history of religion. God revealed to Israel that she was his wife. She was his Asherah. The prophet Hosea was the first to proclaim this truth. God's covenant with Israel was, in fact, a marriage covenant. The Canadian scholar Ehud Ben-Zvi synthesizes Hosea's transformation of the ancient goddess worship well. I quote, Hosea's text contains no reference to Asherah or to any other goddess. But it develops a metaphorical world in which the Lord has a spouse. The text adapts and revises common ancient Near Eastern mythological constructions with one most substantial change. Israel slash the land now stands in the mythological slot of a goddess. The text thus conveys an ideological frame of mind that not only removes the place of the or any goddess as the spouse of the deity of heaven, but also elevates Israel well above the level of that which may be considered worldly. At Mount Sinai, end of quote, at Mount Sinai, God had betrothed Israel to himself. The marriage contract was the Torah. The marriage gift was the promised land and the temple was the marriage canopy. There in the temple, God and Israel were to become forever one. The king was to be the mediator of this marriage in constructing the temple and in representing God to the people. The consummation of the marriage thus took place on the day when Solomon dedicated the temple and God came to take possession of this temple, which was the embodiment of the people of Israel. According to the depiction in 1 Kings chapters 5 to 9, King Solomon's reign was the epitome of the kingdom of God in Old Testament terms. All the promises given to the fathers seem to have been fulfilled. The borders of the land corresponded to the promise received by Abraham. Israel lived in security, everyone under their own vine and fig tree, which is proverbial for the messianic peace. Everything was made of gold, for in Solomon's time, silver was reckoned as nothing. The king of Israel governed over the entire then known world and the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom wisdom that God had put into his heart. God had once again taken his dwelling with man and was audible through Solomon's mouth. Solomon indeed resembled a new Adam with a new Eve, the people of Israel, living in the paradisiacal garden land of Israel in the presence and perfect communion with God in the temple. The kingdom of Solomon thus represents the only fleeting moment in the history of Israel that the kingdom of God seems to have been realized in Israel. While the first book of Kings will also depict Solomon as a second old Adam who repeats the sin of the first Adam by allowing himself to be seduced by women into the worship of foreign divinities and thereby commits the original sin, quote unquote, of the kings that will eventually cause Israel to lose paradise once again, the chronicler leaves no doubt that Solomon's reign was the epitome of God's kingdom on earth. Not only are Solomon's moral stains whitewashed, the chronicler also insists that Solomon inherited the Lord's own throne in affirming, I quote, then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of his father David, and he prospered and all of Israel obeyed him. As the scholar Isaac Kalimi observes, Solomon's kingship, symbolizes the union of theocracy and monarchy. He is the representative of God on earth, as well as the king of the people and their representative in front of God, end quote. It is here that we find for the first time the concept of the kingdom of the Lord that was to become so important for Jewish and Christian thought. In the theology of the chronicler, I quote again, Israel's kingdom and the kingdom of the Lord are, Identical. And at the same time, Israel's kingdom is established through David's sons. These two facets of kingship in Israel limit each other. The Davidic monarchy is still the kingdom of the Lord, and the Lord's kingship is only realized by means of David's dynasty. End of quote. In the kingdom of Solomon, as depicted by the chronicler, we have the perfect prefiguration of Christ's kingdom the reign of the Solomon, whose kingship realizes in truth what had been promised with regard to the old Solomon. He shall be a man of peace, shalom. I will give him shalom from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Shlomo, Solomon. And I will give him shalom and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, he shall be to be a son for me, and I will be a father to him, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. But here I'm getting ahead of myself. For a moment, we have to return to Solomon of Old and the consequences of his fall. As is well known, the peace of the kingdom was soon disturbed on account of the idolatry of its kings and people by the end of Second Kings or else by the end of the year 587 BC, Israel finds herself once more east of Eden. King and people are taken to Babylon. The temple is destroyed. The kingdom is no more. In the aftermath of this catastrophe, the concept of the kingdom of God gained momentum. Looking back upon its past, Israel discerns a pattern which now informs her future hopes and increasingly eschatologizes them. The same God who had led them out of Egypt and planted them on his holy mountain will rescue them from Babylon and bring them back to Zion. Again, it is the ancient Near Eastern combat myth of the dragon slayer that gives expression to their hope, in another act of divine redemption, understood as an act of recreation. Thus Isaiah prays at the height of the Babylonian exile. I quote, was it not you, Lord, who crushed Rahab, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? You who made the depths of the sea into a way for the redeemed to pass through? Those whom the Lord ransomed will return and enter Zion, singing crowned with everlasting joy, Isaiah 51, verse 10. In the same way as the Lord had once crushed Rahab and pierced the dragon, metaphors for Pharaoh and the death-bringing waters of the Reed Sea, Isaiah promises that God will ransom Israel by crushing Babylon and bringing his people back to Mount Zion, God's holy mountain, the city of the great king. Throughout the prophet Isaiah, The redeeming savior of Israel is depicted as a divine warrior who will overcome Israel's enemies and thereby restore Israel to God's kingship. So instead of creation and kingship through chaos combat, as in the ancient myth, we now have recreation and kingship through salvation understood as a divine victory over the enemy. Noteworthy in this respect is the Greek rendition of Deutero-Isaiah's famous oracle of salvation in Isaiah 52, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah says, or well, the Lord says, My people shall know my name in that day, because I am, ego eimi, the one who speaks, I am here. Like the feet of the one evangelizing, a report of peace. Like one, Eoangei evangelizing, bringing glad tidings of good things, because I will make your salvation heard, saying to, saying to Zion, "Basileo sayS Hotheos, Your God shall reign," or even more powerfully in the Hebrew, "Your God is king." Again, we have here the perfect summary of what the gospel announced by Jesus will be. The eangelion of salvation will be that God is king, implying that Israel has been wrested from the enemy's domination and transferred into the kingdom of God. While most prophetic oracles portray the features of this kingdom in entirely this worldly terms, a progressive eschatologization of Israel's hope in the coming of God's kingdom clearly takes place. The kingdom of God will bring about a restoration of the primordial paradise on Mount Zion, radiating outwards into the kingdom of Israel. Isaiah 65 and 66 even speak of a kingdom that will involve the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. The Lord's return to Zion as king and the the reconstruction of his earthly palace, the temple, will, of course, effect a covenant renewal. The latter, as one would expect, again from the ancient Eastern pattern, is announced under the symbol of a marriage. Famous in this respect are the passages from Isaiah, such as, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, or as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Less famous maybe is Psalm 45, but this scripture too views the return from exile under the symbol of a marriage between God and Israel in which the Messiah acts as God's lieutenant. And this leads me to the last missing element, the role that the king of Israel played in the coming of God's kingdom. Along with the promise of a new exodus, the hope in the birth of a new Davidic king who would repeat the saving actions of David and Solomon increasingly informs the prophetic oracles. The famous child king promised by Isaiah fulfills all the canonical requirements of an ancient Near Eastern king whose actions are to mirror those of God. He will, I quote, smash the yoke that burdened them, the pole on their shoulder, the rod of their taskmaster. He will be a prince of peace, his dominion vast and forever peaceful. He will sit on David's throne and over his kingdom, which he confirms and sustains by judgment and justice. In other words, just as Solomon in the past, the future son of David will bring about the kingdom of God in the kingdom of Israel. The son of David promised by Micah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah basically has the same traits. He shall be a shepherd by the strength of the Lord, who shall reign and govern wisely. In his day Judah will be saved. Israel shall dwell securely. This is the name given to him. The Lord is our justice. He shall banish the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The warrior's bow will be banished and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Under his reign, the Lord will make an everlasting covenant with Israel. He will multiply them and most importantly, put his sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling shall be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations shall know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy by putting my sanctuary among them forever, Ezekiel 37. Now, while all these hopes were modeled on the recreation of another Solomonic kingdom, probably in the confines of this world, we observe a very clear eschatolization in the famous vision of Daniel 7. Once again we witness the adoption of the ancient myth to the Bible's revelation. In Daniel, it is combined with the concept of a series of world ages, of four empires of world history. The last empire appears to represent Antiochus Epiphany, who, in the words of Basley Murray, I quote, is represented as manifesting the characteristics of the chaos monster beyond his predecessors. And as the chaos monster was conquered by a champion of heaven in the myth, so also the tyrant faces an annihilating judgment from the ruler of the universe in Daniel. Coming with the clouds of heaven, symbol of a theophany, is, I quote Daniel, one like a son of man. When he reached the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, he received dominion, splendor, and kingship all the nations, people, tongues will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. His kingship one that shall not be destroyed. End of quote. The vision differs from the myth in that it does not allude to any battle. However, since the sovereignty that belonged to the monster is handed over to the cloud rider, it is natural to deduce that the latter is the one who kills the monster and receives the dominion as his reward. With this vision, we are finally on the threshold to the New Testament. So the kingdom of God in the New Testament. How then do the ancient creation myth and its reworking as a drama of historically redemption in the Old Testament play out in the New Testament's account of the world's recreation? It is in the person of Jesus Christ that the job description of an ancient Near Eastern king is uniquely realized. In him, the eternal Son of the Father becomes incarnate as a descendant of the divinely chosen royal house of David so as to accomplish the true mission of an ancient Near Eastern king. So let us quickly recall the elements of his mission to deliver the country from the enemy and thereby restore peace to the kingdom, establish both his and God's throne on earth by erecting a temple for God and to consummate the divine human marriage that brings about the reunification of heaven and earth and thereby restoration of paradise on earth. While the Old Testament demythologized the ancient myth and replaced the chaos monster with Israel's historical enemies, the New Testament takes yet a further step and reveals the true name and nature of the huge dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called Devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world, Revelation 12.9. The dragon is not co-eternal with God, but only a creature. It too had originally been created as a good angel, but in its rebellious desire to be like God rather than to serve God, had fallen from its rank amongst the angels and become the one we know as Satan. As the entire New Testament makes clear, it is this enemy that the son of God, the son of David, came to fight and overcome, in order to deliver us from the power of darkness and transfer us into his kingdom, Colossians 1.13. It is true, the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus cannot be separated because, to borrow an expression from Origen that is very dear to our former pontiff, Pope Benedict XVI, Jesus is the autobasilea. He himself is the kingdom. In the incarnation, which we celebrate today, Heaven and earth have been united. God has pitched his tabernacle tent among us and the kingdom has come into our midst. Even the sacred marriage has already been consummated, first in the union of Christ's divine and human nature, but also, and importantly so, in the fact that the king of Israel has made his dwelling in daughter Zion, Mary. And yet... The New Testament depicts the coming of the kingdom also as a work in progress. Even though Jesus is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit from the very moment of his conception, there is still a moment in his life when in his humanity he receives the messianic anointing from the Father, which makes him the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus' public mission as Messiah King of Israel begins on the day of his baptism in the Jordan when the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends on him and the father's voice declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. A clear echo to the ancient enthronement psalm prayed on the day of the king's royal anointing, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm 2 verse 7. The anointing in the Jordan marks the beginning of Christ's public messianic mission, which he alone of all human beings could fulfill. This is the mission of being truly in essence what the ancient Eastern kings were only figuratively by office, the visible image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. As such, we now see him do and speak only what he has seen and hears the Father do and say. The first task, as we have seen, is to overcome the chaos monster, the arch enemy of humanity. Thus, just as David, who set out to slay Goliath, the chief of the Philistines, right after his messianic anointing, Jesus' own anointing is, in all the Synoptic Gospels, immediately followed by his being driven into the desert by the Holy Spirit to confront and overcome Satan. He returns victorious and proclaims the oiangelion, the gospel of God, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the oiangelion. What is the oiangelion? According to the above mentioned prophecy in Isaiah 52 verse 7, it is the good news that deliverance has come and that God is king. Jesus himself makes this connection in Matthew twelve twenty eight, and also in Luke, the gospel we had yesterday, where he says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In the power of the Spirit, he first tied up the strong man before he plundered his house through his public ministry. And so also like David, he sets out for the outskirts of his kingdoms and delivers it from enemy occupation by doing good and healing those oppressed by the devil. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. The enemy, however, does not relinquish his property easily. Jesus' entire life is one prolonged, single combat with the enemy culminating on the cross, where through his own death, he definitively destroyed the one who has power of death that is the devil, and freed those who through fear of death had been subject to slavery all their lives. Hebrews chapter two, fourteen. It is here on the cross that the ancient myth has become a bitter reality. Christ slays the dragon through the cross and then descends into the dragon's territory to break the supremacy of hell. In his resurrection, he destroyed the last enemy, which is death, and ascends triumphant far above all the heavens, that he may fill all things, Ephesians 4:10) and inherits an eternal kingdom. The cross, of course, is also Christ's throne, as the Gospel of John so powerfully displays. It is both Jesus' throne and the iron rod with which he rules all nations, The throne has its glorious counterpart in heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the father and from where he now begins to expand his kingdom, the church over all the earth. Slaying the primordial enemy, as we have seen, is not an end in itself, but an act of recreation which is to result, according to the mythic pattern of the ancient Near East or the Old Testament pattern, in the establishment of God's reign on earth as it is realized in the king's own realm. The outstanding characteristic of this kingdom will be peace. It is therefore no coincidence that the very first words of the victorious and risen Lord to the frightened disciples on the eve of the resurrection are a twice-repeated, peace be with you. The messianic peace is now available to all who acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and say God. A reign calls for a palace and thus for the construction of a temple. The temple again will be the place of the sacred marriage uniting heaven and earth. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. We hear, we hear the Lord proclaim in John two nineteen. By this temple, as John explains, Jesus meant the temple of his body. The juxtaposition of the wedding of Cana and the purification of the temple in John chapter 2, gives us an important reading key to the Paschal mystery. What had been vaguely intuited by the pagan New Year's Akitu festival, namely that the recreation of the world would demand the purification of the temple and lead to a divine human marriage, becomes a reality. The cross is the hour of Christ, the hour of his wedding to his people in which the new covenant is established, and It is the moment of the purification of the temple, the living temple of his body upon which he had gathered up the sins of the whole world. It is torn down, that is purified, and rebuilt, undefiled, and indestructible in his resurrection. His crucified and yet glorified body is this temple from which flows forth the source of purification for the entire world as the prophecies by, as prophesied by Ezekiel and Zechariah, On that day, fresh water will flow from Jerusalem. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. The Gospel of Luke has a more narrative approach that fleshes things out a bit more. In Luke's report, the dedication of the temple and therefore the sacred marriage between God and his people quintessentially takes place on the day of Pentecost. On this day... The presence of the Lord, the so-called Shekinah, in the person of the Holy Spirit, descended once and for all into the nascent Church and made her His dwelling among men. Ever since then, the kingdom of God has been established on earth. It subsists in the Church, who is at once the body and bride, the temple of the Son of God and the temple of the, the body and bride of the Son of God and the temple of the Triune God. What then are we praying for when we say in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come? While the New Testament makes it clear that the kingdom has come and is present in the world, it also leaves no doubt that it is still coming on its way. It does not yet encompass all of creation. We all experience the famous already and not yet by virtue of our baptism and confirmation We have already become citizens and members of the household of God, Ephesians 2.19, which is another way of saying we've become citizens of the kingdom. We are the temple in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, both individually and corporately. In every Eucharist, we already participate in the wedding feast of the Lamb. And yet we also know that the words of 1 John 5.19 are similarly true. We know that we belong to God, but the whole world is under the power of the evil one. The reality of this already and not yet is powerfully expressed in Jesus' parables of the kingdom. There are those to whom the knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of God have been granted, and there are those to whom everything comes in parables. Those groups are mixed and cannot be distinguished by the naked eye, as exemplified by the parable of the weeds. Only the end of the ages will tell. The kingdom of God is indeed, like the yeast, almost invisible, and yet leavening the entire dough of humanity. And the kingdom is like a wedding feast that that a king gave for his son. The guests are still being summoned. God in his mysterious plan of salvation has decreed that the victory won by his son on the cross is yet to be applied by his people, both in themselves and in the world. Like Israel of old, we're implicated in the ongoing battle against the forces of evil, not with flesh and blood, but the principalities, the powers, with the rulers of the present darkness, with the evil spirits in the heavens, Ephesians 6.12. The book of Revelation says it clearly. The dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Or in the words of the catechism, Ever since Pentecost a decisive battle has been joined between the flesh and the spirit. The final victory however belongs to our God. Revelation 19:1. 9, it is only when the Son of man returns on the clouds of heaven that the victory will be complete. The Lord will establish his reign and the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Only then will the wedding feast of the Lamb be celebrated in a temple that will encompass a new heaven and a new earth in which the sea will be no more, that is, the sea monster. Until then, the mystery is anticipated in sacrament. And that is why we pray with the Spirit and the bride, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, or, in the words of our Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come. I thank you for your attention. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, uh, um, do you have a comment on, in general on God's preparation of the people for Revelation? Because you spoke to the Mesopotamian situation, which is when you hear those details, it can be surprised. You're, they're surprising. And some people would use that to impeach the legitimacy of the scripture to say well see they have, those things were already there They just got so you, you didn't even make up anything new you took their stuff and that. <laughs> but, so what's corrected and what's new and what would you say about is there something important uh, about the God's preparation or is it something we can even speak definitively about or, or is it, yeah how would you what would you say about that?
1: So well, honestly, I this is the the answer I hope to hear from you, systematic theologians, because um, well, I, I mean, it's obviously a question from fundamental theology, right? I was really struck this morning in the Eucharistic prayer where uh, where it says the hope of all nations have been fulfilled because it so ties in with these astounding parallels with the the true dreams of the pagans. I mean, one thing is is one thing I. Uh, well you 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 hit the right button because God does not only use the language of the time we also believe obviously that he has prepared man in some way and that there is a true primordial uh, knowledge but frankly this is my question to the to the theologians amongst you and I'd be very grateful to have someone spell out a, a systematic answer how we explain the fact that almost all uh, All cultures have these semina verbi that are so so surprising, no? (laughs) Thank
2: you very much, and thank you for that. Great question, Father Koo. Uh, I'm getting this from, well, St. Thomas and then Father Reginald Lynch in his uh, sacraments class, in which he has so enlightened us about the relationship between nature and grace and the virtue of religion, also Father Dominic Benjamin's question. And it seems to, I mean, to me at least, a linchpin here is that The virtue of religion is proper to man's natural inclination, the seeking of God, uh, because we have a natural desire built into us, which is, of course, elicited in the supernatural order, in grace. Um, And so what we can see then in, and what St. Thomas says on the treatment of the old law precisely, so it serves a twofold purpose. First, in its literal sense, to perfect the ancient Israelites in their worship of God, so that they would be withdrawn from the idolatrous temptations of, you know, just as you mentioned, Dr., uh, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and be led to worship the true God. And the justification, if I understand correctly, of practicing the old law comes through uh, the faith, you know, the faith of Abraham, passed down through the observance of the law. Um, but then, in the full, on, on the figurative sense of that, is all to point forward to Christ, and especially the Paschal Mystery, precisely what you elucidated for us in your talk. Um, and so perhaps then, what we want to see here is beautiful affirmation of the the dynamism between nature and grace because the fact that all of these uh pagan cultures have natural religion exercised in some respects virtuously in some respects obviously improperly or impurely uh what God is doing is purifying the nature, elevating it, still I mean or purifying in this natural aspect in the old law, and then elevating and perfecting it in the new law of grace, which you know is realized on Calvary and the Eucharist and so forth. So I mean uh <laughs> Is
3: there a question there of, <laughs> of or, or,
1: No, he was so kind to uh, to, to answer, answer my question. want to say in response
3: to professor?
1: <laughs> No, of course, and I fully other agree. other questions? Over
3: oh
4: here, hold on. Thank you for coming again. Um, yeah, thank you, because I, I think it's a, like a very encouraging talk, and, and uh, yeah, at least I'm Alpha in my faith, and I, I think that this is very good, because, um, yeah, you, you realize that God won, like, His, his uh, our conquering king, but sometimes our experience in the world is maybe the opposite, at least at, at some times, that you see that secular world is gaining traction, and uh, so... Maybe, yeah, how, aside from rereading your paper, <laughs> what other means do you think we have to be more connected to this reality that God won and that his kingdom is present? So maybe from scriptures, uh, what would be like a good way or a, maybe like a, a practical way of, of connecting and, and growing in our faith and in this truth?
1: I, I think... Um... One part for which, obviously, I didn't have time, but is to meditate and reflect on the way in which this king acts so differently to the kings of the ancient Near East and the worldly king. You know, when he says, amongst you, the kings lorded over, but uh, I have come to serve and lay down my lay- life in ransom for many to see that um, he, he's just also the absolute counter image of what all, all the ancient Near Eastern and biblical kings even were who... Um, yeah, an, an earthly king has his people serve him and here comes the eternal king and serves us. Um, and and to meditate, I mean, this is the Lenten season we're going to with Easter. How exactly did he, did he um, deliver us from evil by laying down his life and paying with the price of his blood? And the, I mean, there is this gruesome passage in the catechism, which has become very famous pre, in the recent years, um, 675 to 77, where it speaks about the necessity of the church to undergo the same suffering as her bridegroom, right? So there's, I mean, even if you look through the book of Revelation, it's very clear that the closer we come to Christ returning, the mystery is that the dragon seems to acquire more power. And so it seems to me that the church is called by following her Lord to Calvary, by allowing herself to be crucified with him. That's how the book of Revelation picks it in its images. It's then when everything seems to be lost and she is also crucified, that's the moment of the victory. That is my spiritual input. <laughs> Thank
3: you. Ms. Kayla Marsh. Thank you.
2: Um, my question is um, largely to the end of um, kingdoms in the worldly sense. Um, and I know that this this phrase, that kingdom come," has been interpreted to mean we must build Christendom here, right? Um, and there is a real sense of creating that, you know, political kingdom on earth, um, and, and having the church, in a way, you know, establish that. And so, um, I'm I'm curious how you interpret that, you know, like the full, the more purely spiritual. Sanctifying the souls, Christ dwelling, or the yeah, spirit dwelling, um, Christ redeeming kind of kingdom versus the like brick and mortar um, kingdom, which has you know, which has influenced much of history.
1: Again, I have to say that is way beyond my pay grade. That is a question for <laughs> for the for the historians or the, the theologians, the historical theology, uh usually debated topic, obviously, right? Um but um I mean, the Lord did teach us at least, you know, and there is different views. If you like ask a German, we have a different view than the French, and the Americans have a different approach to that again. So I don't think the church has an answer on that question, right? Um, Anybody object? (laughs) 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 Um, uh, I find it astounding that, I think it was Bridget of Sweden who said, it's only when the Pope will lose his worldly power, then the church is really going to flourish. And um, so we did see a flourishing after the loss of the papal states after 1870. <laughs> and and speaking from a German perspective, all our worldly power has ruined our church. Only when we get rid of the money will the German church resurrect.
2: Well, again, thank you for your talk. I, I wanted to ask you a question about the law. So we, you, you mentioned the role of the king as overcoming chaos and that's reflective of of the divinities, of overcoming of chaos, but you didn't bring into it the notion of the law. So, if you, you could speak, I to should that. have. I mean, that is the
1: key the key thing, and it's so powerful, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, view of Christ, because even the ancient Eastern kings they will boast about how perfectly divine their laws were. And and the and if you the law, it's justice and righteousness. Uh, those terms come from the Mesopotamian. Uh, royal ideology and its in justice and righteousness that the that the king through the he reveals the divinely given laws and if they if these laws are followed then paradise is is restored.
2: So then, even in other uh, Near Eastern uh, cultures, the king is not
0: the law giver;
1: he's, he's even the law receiver. He's exactly, law, law he mediates a law that he receives from the divine. So you see that very clearly in Psalm seventy-two where it's kind of underwritten as David's prayer for his son, and he says, give the right judgment to the king. Or that's why in the biblical narrative, it's only after Solomon receives the wisdom, he's able to be the judge.
0: And then this
2: is one of the reasons why Jesus' Jesus's role as king is different, because he's not just a mediator of the law, he is the maker of
1: the law, Legis- the new law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you.
3: Sister, over on the
1: left. Thank you so much. What gift you brought to us
5: this afternoon. I really enjoy your talk. So I have just have a couple of points just to see if, it's, if it works out. So um, to talk about all these um, um, uh, criteria for a king in ancient Israel, that is like a reflection of the ancient Near East. And so I looked through um, the Gospel of St. John, which is my favorite, and I see all of these connections with what you are saying. For example, the seven days leading to the wedding piece of Cana, reflecting the seven day Genesis 2, uh, also in, them, in the number of Exodus 19, when the law is given to uh, the people um, through the hand of Moses. And that's the, as you mentioned, the marriage between the Lord and the people of Israel. And then I also th- thought about Christ as a warrior. On the mount um, of Calvary, right there and then, that's the skull. And looking back into Genesis three fifteen, the um, the offspring of the woman will will crush the head of the servant. And there you have we have the promise of the Lord now being played out in, in this great saga, this great salvation history. And then it it's just perfectly. Um, Consummated, when the Lord said, It is finished, it is consummated. And I thought, Here the Lord is coming down to marry these people. Um, and John is seeing all these connections. In John 12, the Lord is um, anointed at the feet, just like in Psalms. Psalms
1: mm, you know, mm, 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 112, songs.
5: Yeah. yes. Um, and then also the Lord going into the um, entering, entering Jerusalem on a day that was not supposed to be the feast of tabernacle, but you, we have like the palms and the fruits and all those, um, mm-hmm. you know, like that belonged to a feast when the king would be inaugurated. So all these images, like just provoking me, this, what you are presented. So uh, thank you so much. And? <laughs>
1: thank you, you just said everything I didn't have the time to say, wonderful. <laughs>
5: So thank you. So you, do you have any objection?
1: No, 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 zero. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very grateful you're filling all this in. <laughs> yeah. And then
5: would you please uh, give us some more resources, like what, you know, whenever
1: um, you can send it to us
3: via yeah, email or some website somewhere, please. <laughs> so thank you so much. Everyone should just read uh, Professor Hermann's book maybe not, <laughs> maybe not um, I'll, I'll ask the question um, there is a you, oh, well, I, I saw it already <laughs> um, <laughs> picking up uh, some themes that have been mentioned already in terms of what is new that Christ gives to us in this uh, pattern of ancient Near Eastern and Old Testament kingship and kingdom uh, What could we offer now with the cross, or and and, and what's the difference now with the cross? Uh, Are there statements? Are there themes that you want to bring out in terms of comparison? Thy kingdom come, and thinking as well today, the incarnation and the very astounding way that the Lord comes as as King. So, are there patterns um, with? Specific texts that you would want to bring out in terms of thy kingdom come, and then comparing that to thy littleness come, thy humility come, the little baby come? Are there ways to bring that together with particular Old Testament texts that spring to mind for us who are just humble theologians?
1: I thought I'd given you enough Old Testament texts. <laughs> I feel like in an STB exam. <laughs> Father comes to my seminary and does the STB exams. <laughs> um, so that was a, a, a huge question. Um, I mean, what 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 strikes me particularly in in Second Corinthians is when or when Paul says Jesus is the Amen to everything that has been prophesied. And so, while in the ancient you have this um, royal pattern. Um you know like i mean the the old testament just out the new testament of course is brand new because you never you never ever expect god himself to become man right you just have these preparations there will be an anointed king and and then daniel 7 is the closest we get i mean there's this you probably know this book by um the famous daniel boyarin He's the only Jew who says, well, I think actually Daniel 7 imports a divine being into, into the God of Israel. Um, so he would hold that we have a prefiguration of a divine being who's going to be the, the victor. But normally, that's not mainstream Jewish interpretation. Um, so so the fact that, that it's God himself who humbles himself and becomes a human being and on on our behalf overcomes the enemy... Um, is brand new. <laughs> and uh, and then. Um...
3: Very good. Uh, final question
0: uh, from Father Andre. Thank you very much, Dr. Herrmann. Great. Um, so, my question is, and perhaps connects to the first talk a little bit. In Isaiah, when we see the prophesied coming of the Davidic king, who, as you said, fulfills Everything a king needs to fulfill in in one way it's a culmination of the deliverance of Israel from their oppressors and from Assyria and the um, the threats from the north. Mm-hmm. but in another way, it's the culmination of the purification of Israel herself. Mm-hmm. you know the Lord's hand is stretched out against his people mm-hmm. in the first part of Isaiah, and similarly, you can think of Christ or at least I'm thinking of christ's parable when the king is arrayed against you with 20,000 and you don't have enough to stand in front of him, could you speak just for a moment about the way that, or in what way you might see, that it's us who Christ comes to conquer, or it's we who are the chaos monster, perhaps?
1: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, I'd rather say, I would only say he overcomes the chaos that the monster has generated in us, or we through our sins, and what Father said earlier that um that the there is a true um deliverance that needs to take place. Um what I find mo- more powerful in, in, in the parallels you just drew is the fact that and here I can do a promo for Father Anthony Gambroni's upcoming book on the priesthood, where he de- demonstrates this so beautifully how the temple becomes like a thermometer for Israel's sinfulness because um in the, in the ancient idea is that when the people sins, it's like the picture, he uses that analogy of the image of Dorian Gray, right? Israel seems to remain beautiful, but when she sins, all her um, the temple is the, is the image of Dorian Gray in the attic. And so um, her sins are amassed in the temple, and that's why the temple needs to be completely erased and purified, and Israel needs to go into exile as a temple people and die and resurrect. And so you clearly see here how... Um, In the Old Testament, we kind of learn, we should be dying. We should be paying the price for this. And then the New Testament reveals, and of course prophesied in Isaiah, that the Lord himself will take that upon himself and do that act of atonement on our behalf. And yet, and here again, you're right, there's so many of these Isaiah passages that speak on the one hand about the Messiah, but then it's for a good reason that scholars are divided. Is it a a singular person or is it a collective? Because the mystery of the church is already present, and we also al- already see perfigured how we will we are drawn into both uh, the battle and the um, the work the the, ato- the work of atonement.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor. Let us give our thanks to Professor Herman. <clears throat> <laughs>